0: Welcome back to Over Here. My name is Nick Finzer, and today we're going to talk with jazz saxophonist Ethan Helm of Cowboys and Frenchmen, and he's going to share with us a little bit about his top 10. But it's more than just a top 10 conversation. We really delve into a lot of things about music, and uh, particularly conversations about composing and intention from composers and really like writing interesting and compelling music and kind of what makes interesting and compelling music for Ethan and uh, I thought this was a really interesting conversation I thought some of the other of our top tens have been a little shorter but this one is a little bit longer Ethan tells us what he's up to And then we go ahead and talk about all 10 of the tracks that he wanted to mention. And there's a wide range of music here. Everything from early Count Basie all the way through to some Ligeti and through to uh, some kind of like folk music. And also even into Maria Schneider and some really modern uh, jazz composers. So without further ado, I'm not going to waste any time getting into this conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ethan Helm. And uh, it was a wide-ranging one. But make sure to go and check out the Spotify playlist that has all of these tracks. You're going to want to hear some of this music. So please enjoy Ethan Helm. Today we're talking with Ethan Helm. And uh, he's going to share with us some of his favorite music. We're it, just so everyone knows, it's not, I don't think it's in any particular uh, quality order. It's just uh, a bunch of music that uh, he really likes. Mm-hmm. And But before we get to that... Ethan, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and uh, yeah.
1: All right. Thanks, Nick. Um, Yeah, my name is Ethan Helm. I'm a saxophonist and composer with the band Cowboys and Frenchmen, which is on um, the Outside of Music label. Our first album, Rodeo, came out recently. And our second one is coming out soon. But um, so me personally, I live and work in new york city and um play with a bunch of different projects here i'm originally from california um i met nick and most of my cowboys and frenchmen um conspirators at eastman in rochester uh during our undergrads and um i did a masters at nyu here And since then, uh, I've just been doing my own thing, Um, playing with a lot of people around town. Um, I've gotten to play with Nick a few times. It's been fun. With um, the Gil Evans project, right, Nick?
0: Yeah, man, that's been great.
1: Um, Always fun, always a blast. And, yeah, I think that's my whole bio. (laughs) (laughs) Start to uh, finish.
0: And, man, I'm just uh, kind of after the, this airs it's going to have aired after um a bunch of conversations i had with some people about kind of jazz education so mm-hmm. I, it might be nice to follow up a little bit on that so what what kind of brought you to to eastman i, I i'm always mm. curious what brings people to rochester as somebody who grew <laughs> up there
1: yeah um so yeah i grew up in southern california and um Just kind of through a weird series of connections, I knew a lot of the teachers at Eastman. Um, I know Clay Jenkins used to teach at USC, so he had, I think, um, a lot of my mentors um, know Clay. Uh, I studied with a saxophonist named Dan St. Marseille, also Billy Frenzel when I was really young, and then um, when I got older, I got to take a, a few lessons with the great... Gary Foster, um, and all of these people pointed me towards Eastman. Um, my first teacher showed me Maria Schneider, um, when I was like in seventh grade or something, he played hang gliding for me and, oh, wow. um, yeah, and it, it obviously blew my mind. I didn't know jazz sounded like that. Right. Um, yeah. And then each of my other teachers kind of had a, a similar thing to say, um, about the program at Eastman. And um, so I went to the camp in high school. Um, I was very excited about that and met all the, th- all the faculty because they all teach at the, the high school camp, which is great. And um, I was just kind of set on it. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I'm not like a very exciting or um, adventurous person, you know, <laughs> so like I wasn't quite ready for New York City. Um, mm-hmm. Rochester was um, a big enough town for me. I don't know. Yep. As someone who grew up there, did you what, what's your opinion of the city? Because I like it; I like it a lot.
0: Um, my opinion. <laughs> my opinion is that it is a, it is a good city. I mean, a good place in general. But I was just at by that point, I was just done with it. I just right, yeah. I was just you know, I mean, maybe not at the beginning of Eastman. By the time, but by the time I left, I knew it was time to go. I just yeah. had this, you know kind of gut feeling They're Just like all right i gotta get out of here right uh, right right. i don't know I, um yeah i feel like a lot of a lot of people that they generally have at least people from eastman they generally have generally positive feelings about rochester and i'm always yeah kind of the curmud- the curmudgeonly uh opinion in the room
1: right yeah well I, I think it grows on you or it grew on me as a town and maybe if you grew up there there's no like there's no joy in discovering um discovering interesting things about it because you kind of know everything about it already maybe sure yeah totally just uh you know theory
0: yeah no that's it could be true and maybe i was just just a grumpy, grumpy <laughs> uh, college student and just probably wanted, yeah. to, just wanted to get out of there
1: <laughs> yeah right
0: and then uh is there are you you're starting up again with another program soon yeah
1: yeah yeah speaking of jazz education um I'm starting a PhD at NYU in the fall, uh-huh. so that's that's my big my next big adventure. Nice. What well, um, prompted that? Um, it, I really enjoyed my master's there. Uh, NYU has a ton of different um, avenues to explore. Like <clears throat> when I was there, I took like a a class about uh, 20th century opera, a class about computer music. I studied world music. Um, I studied like M bass music, the Steve Coleman thing Mm -hmm. um, with a bunch of great teachers. And so I never, um, the whole time, it was just like a big, um, big like sampling menu um, during my master's. And so I I thought a doctorate would be a great way to go back and explore um, more of those in depth. Uh-huh. and um, also provide some kind of uh, stability both um financially and like socially you know having something to do every day and sure having some goals to work towards
0: mm-hmm. and uh so what is is it just like jazz saxophone or is it something more specific
1: yeah, yeah i think i mean that's that's the um that's the title of the the degree i think um but i'm i'm sure I will uh, get into something much more specific, especially okay. as I do the whole dissertation thing. And Right. Um, but yeah, much. I haven't, sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, no, go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, no, I, I haven't um, explored uh, the curriculum.
0: Sure. Cause I think,
1: I think it's pretty customizable as oh, nice. far as I understand. So, yeah,
0: that's cool. And how long is it going to yeah. take you? Do you think?
1: Uh I think 5 years. Oh wow. Um yeah, start to finish.
0: Man, well, good luck. So,
1: yeah, thanks. You're gonna <laughs> need it.
0: Are you going to be studying with um uh Dave? Pietro?
1: Um I don't know yet. I haven't decided. Um, it's kind of They have so many so many good teachers there. Yeah, I didn't study with Dave during my master's, so that'd be awesome. Um I also did not get to work with Mark Turner dur- during my master's, so that would also be Oh, yeah. awesome that would be great um so yeah i mean i'll have five years to
0: <laughs> yeah right to kind of take it with everybody mm-hmm. awesome man well let's jump into this list here um, let's do it so just you know give everyone a little bit of context as to kind of you know why it's a special record for you and kind of place us like in time like you where when you discovered it so, sure
1: so yeah yeah cool.
0: so how about uh, number one
1: yeah great um, actually first, can I, can yeah. I just say, um, I didn't, I left out one when oh. I sent you an email. I skipped number nine. So I added one somewhere. Oh, cool. Um, hope this doesn't throw you off or anything. No, I'll, I'll no we, figure it out. we can yeah, do a little, do a little off-roading. <laughs> yeah. Go for
0: uh,
1: it. Cool. But anyway, yeah, so number one on my list is Repay in Kind, which is from a Greg Osby album called Symbols of Light Solution um, from 2001. The tune itself is actually written by Jason Moran, as far as I understand. Um, Yeah, it's from this album that I originally found, maybe like early high school, at my public library in Your Belinda. like, you know, at some point, one of us, one of you know, one of our friends figured out that they have jazz CDs there. Oh, um, sure. And so we all, you know, we all went there and they had like a bunch of Pat Metheny, um, of course, which is awesome. They had like um, some Miles Davis, um, you know, like Ken Burns, Jazz Presents, Charlie Parker, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And then for some crazy reason, they had this um, Greg Osby quartet with string quartet album. And, um, I found, I mean, I saw he played alto saxophone. So that was, you know, um, that was a good, a good indication that it was for me, but I was struck by everything on the album. Everything about the album was so odd to me. Um, it just kind of grabbed me like the title symbols of light, a solution, uh, very very abstract and strange um, the cover art is like a sepia tone photograph of Greg Osby in a top hat uh, all the liner notes are written in first person which I don't think it's something I'd really seen before
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, and so I it kind of struck me that all of all of these elements I realized for the first time are up for grabs in terms of uh, your artistic expression You don't just have to have like a photo of the band on the cover. That the album title doesn't have to just be the name of the band, Volume One, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, This was all new to me. You know, something wouldn't have occurred occurred to me had I not found this album. Um, And then similarly for this tune itself, um, I don't know if you've if you've heard this, but it's like it starts out with kind of this whole step ostinato. Um uh, kind of syncopated rhythm, and uh, it just took me forever to figure that out. I wanted like I tried to transcribe it and I could tell it wasn't a chord it wasn't and it wasn't a single note it was it was something uh, that had some kind of resonance, but it wasn't a triad um, and it was like you know when you're really young and you have and you like hear some kind of dissonance and it just takes you forever to figure out what it is mm-hmm. um. So, yeah, I eventually figured out, oh, that's a whole step. That's just right next to each other on the piano. That's really cool. Uh, again, something I didn't think was, like, allowed. Right, um,
0: right. Interesting.
1: Yeah. And then uh, the bass line... So I, I basically spent, you know, however many hours transcribing just, like, the first eight bars of this. Uh-huh. Uh, and the bass line is really cool. It starts, like, starts on an F sharp. It's kind of like an inverted... Um D major type sound. okay. and I, I'd never heard like a uh, such a clear example of an inverted chord, you know, something starting on the third. Um, and it just had kind of like a very nuanced emotional resonance. It's still strong, but it, it was so different than what I thought a major chord sounded like. And it just kind of blew my mind that um, that a song would start with this sound that was so rich and so compelling and so strange.
0: hmm So the, yeah, so I guess it was like a big discovery moment for you.
1: For sure, yeah.
0: And so you said that was in high school. That was that like the one of the I first Jazz so. records you checked out. This one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'd been I'd been collecting some other, uh, stuff. other stuff, and I. I benefited from a really strong uh, like jazz program both in middle school and high school and private teachers and friends um, so I had people playing stuff for me all the time but uh nothing that was this kind of um, it was like as artistically daring
0: sure
1: you know mm-hmm. um to me this this was a new kind of a new world
0: gotcha. And so kind of now changing pace a little bit. Mm-hmm. You got uh, a little Count Basie here.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, changing changing pace for sure. Uh, so, uh, this is another one. Go ahead.
0: So it's Count's place, you said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah Count basing in the Kansas City 7. Um, from like the early 60s. Small group recording. And I, I think the album itself is like over half blues um as any album should be
0: sure sure
1: (laughs) um yeah all just um the exact tempo you're you're imagining and it's got fad jones frank foster um frank west on some tracks eric dixon um and then of course freddie freddie green eddie jones and sunny Payne, um the rhythm section right and um now, this is like a really weird tune. It's got um, this really great kind of subtly bitonal melody to it. It's, uh, it's a C blues, but there's kind of E minor triads in the harmony uh, in a way that's in the melody so simple, it really sticks out. This is, So this is kind of like an album that I've had for a while just sitting around in iTunes um, on my iPod or whatever. And it wasn't until recently that I I listened to it with really careful, more mature ears. And, um, the whole album is just fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. And even though it's a blues, the solos are just super strange. Like each one is weirder than the next. Um, yeah. yeah, It's been
0: a while since I've heard this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like what you'd expect from, from Thad, um, just so harmonically colorful and adventurous. And I, I think like, you know, each horn, horn player lays down the gauntlet and each uh, successive horn player gets a little bit weirder. Nice. Uh, yeah. The other thing I like about this album is I think the small group really highlights um, how radical Count Basie is uh, aesthetically. You know, you get in the big band and he's doing fills and stuff and of course, um, that music is inarguably transcendent, yeah. but if in the septet setting, when the piano is like one seventh of the ensemble, it has a lot more presence and you imagine the pianist being a lot more active in a small group. Mm-hmm. And so that, it kind of brings, um, his voice into relief and you really hear, The fact that he's stripping away notes, um, it's starting with like the swing tradition and just removing anything that could be possibly removed and you're just left with like the skeleton of swing. Right. And so that's why that's why I like this album particularly in this in this track.
0: Yeah. Cool. And okay, And so I see now some Liggett. You've got some Liggett on here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. What? um, What else? Um, Yeah, and this is this is kind of another recent fascination of mine. Ligeti in general, but um, the violin concerto seems to be a pretty great demonstration of his of his late style, um, which has like this kind of kitchen sink compositional approach. Okay, where he's doing like microtonality. And using weird instruments and very complex techniques, and then also a lot of um, really groovy rhythms. Um, so it's really digestible, especially for uh, us jazz musicians. Really, really accessible avant-garde music, at least for me. Sure. Um, and it's it's interesting. Like the musical, the music. Is so complex that every recording I've heard um, sounds really different. There's so so many moments to highlight that each recording, but whoever the ensemble is, seems to pick out different different moments and really bring them to the foreground. Okay. And so that's kind of kind of cool to hear different recordings and hear how much is going on. Um, I don't know which one which one are you including on your. Spotify. I have
0: I haven't uh, I haven't put it together yet. I was gonna oh, do okay. it after after I talked Sorry. to so. Sorry to um, I can uh, call you out. No, it's okay. Uh, I, can, <laughs> I can include any version, or I could include multiple versions if uh, if that's possible, and so that people can hear the difference.
1: That'd be cool. Yeah, um, totally.
0: What's your uh, do you have a favorite one?
1: No, no, and that's that's um, that's kind of uh, the point I was hoping to make is that um, they're all so good
0: oh okay cool let me write that down
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no uh, word for word they're all yeah, so yeah. good
0: they're all so good um so how did you how did you come to find Ligeti's music and become kind of into it
1: yeah I think you know I kind of knew I of course we learn about these guys in music history sure and um it's that you know the lectures were at like 8 30 in the morning and um, you're just trying to memorize it all. So I, I knew the name, but there was this uh, concert series at the Whitney a few few years ago, celebrating um, Conlon Nancarrow. You know, with the piano rolls, all the okay. prepared piano stuff.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, an alarm will sound. Another Eastman product was right. doing uh, a couple concerts. Because I think that's where Ligeti got all of his um, quote-unquote jazzy rhythms, was getting um, kind of like stride piano and rag piano through Ponlon Nancaro's player piano stuff. Oh, okay. Um, as far as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong, but um, I think that's what happened. But anyway, so yeah, there's definitely a Nan Caro connection, and that's why... Uh, alarmable sounded to these concerts, um, where they would do, they would juxtapose pieces of Ligeti, um, with orchestrations of me and Carol's music. So you could hear the connection. Mm-hmm. And, um, at that, I think my ears were finally ready for it at, at this particular concert and it just blew me away. So I've been kind of tearing through his, especially his late output, um, violin concerto piano um uh, he's got some really great piano etudes uh, yeah what i like about him is that as weird as as weird as his music is his notation is super clear and doesn't take a lot of um intellectual leaps and bounds to get into okay so if you, you look mm-hmm. at a score and you can kind of uh, us um poor jazz schmucks can get a even um, <laughs> even us can even understand. Us. Um, yeah, so that's why that's why I like Lickety.
0: Excellent. Um, now this next one, I'm not familiar at all with oh. Julia Holter. I'll have to mm-hmm. hit me to this.
1: Oh yeah. Um, yeah, so she's pretty recent uh, recent fo- to me as well, um, and I don't know much of her other output. I just know this new album, have you in my wilderness from 2015. Okay. Uh, it's really incredible. It kind of has, I think she performs with jazz musicians. It's kind of, um, uh, these really impeccably constructed songs, uh, played with a lot of looseness, um, by the band. And the album is like super, um, fully orchestrated not in the sense that it's like a full orchestra but just very full spectrum of sounds um there's a lot of like woodwinds and a lot of violin and um there's a really great saxophone solo on this particular track see calls me home do you know who it is i think it's this guy danny meyer who i'm not familiar with okay we have like 80 facebook friends in common so oh, very nice there's a nice yeah every reason so you
0: also stalked him online
1: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> of
0: course
1: um endlessly but yeah actually crispy plays um on other tracks too Oh,
0: okay but
1: cool. yeah so there's a there's a great um a great tenor solo but yeah there's this music has this kind of mystery to it that's really alluring um, uh, she kind of goes back and forth between singing and this kind of talking, I guess, what a, is that? Like sprexteme? What oh, to me, you know, oh, you know what I'm yeah, talking about? I do.
0: I do. Uh, uh, I think, yes, I think.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's say yes. We're not going to, we're not going to figure enough, right? <laughs> for us. Yeah, yeah. I
0: know what
1: you mean. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. So some of the, some of the, material she's not exactly singing um and it's just so cool and so interesting sonically i love it and so Um,
0: she's a singer right
1: yeah 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 she's singer songwriter but definitely um you'd consider her i would consider her like a composer because you know it's, it's one of these projects where um she she does everything. You know, like the entire output is is her vision.
0: Okay, uh, cool. Yeah. Is she? Uh, where is she based out of?
1: I want to say Los Angeles. I think she went to Cal Arts. Okay. Um, but I'm pretty sure she's just like touring nonstop now.
0: Oh wow! I'm gonna have to uh, check it out. I've not. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Very beautiful stuff.
0: Excellent. Uh, okay, and now the next one I think is pretty a bit more well-known in the jazz world at least oh yeah is this uh a, a different take than the one that is most famous This like someone who love, coltrane
1: um i don't know maybe i don't know the most famous one
0: it's uh, on uh because you have listed it's on the fearless leader box set
1: oh right right right
0: but um it's on um uh the Album is escaping me at the moment, but it's a, there's, it's on one of one of the records. But it, that's a, that's the uh, thing that, I think that's interesting uh, is that you know our generation like we come to things in a different way because sometimes that is how we discover tracks, is like on like a compilation or right, you know, and it's something that uh, I don't know. It's definitely a generational generational thing I think because our teachers always would be like no you need to know the record but we're like well right. I, listened, I listened to 200 coltrane tracks on this box set <laughs> it's not right. enough
1: yeah yeah um i definitely have there's some artists where i don't have like a single real album of theirs i mean i'm not saying coltrane's one of them um but there are a lot of artists where I, I literally only have like a giant box set or a compilation album right um I don't know if, if that's bad or good or Yeah, I don't you know. know. Everyone, everyone's got a freaking opinion about that, about everything. Um
0: of course.
1: So I'm I'm sure I'm doing it all wrong. Nah. Um uh, Yeah, but more importantly, um this track I really liked. I I picked it just because it was one of those things where I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot I had this huge box set and I listened to it and um the tune, like "Someone in Love," which you know I've played like a thousand times, and I'm sure you have too. Um, you know, every like background music gig, you pull this out, and you could just uh, get so much mileage out of it. Right. And it, it, like, I heard it recently, and it really floored me. Um, just hearing how much musical intent there was in the way Coltrane played. You know, like like I said, I've played this melody a thousand times, and I've just taken it for granted pretty much every time, Um, both in the melody and, like, in the way I approach the changes. I'm just doing my normal, you know, let's play as fast as possible for as many choruses as possible.
0: Sure.
1: Um, And then to hear this um, giant take the melody so seriously and play it with so much expression... And it, it was like, oh, man, I got to, you know, reevaluate my my priorities here. Sure. Um, yeah. It was just one, one of those moments.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes it gets kind of brushed over. I remember Clay maybe kind of talking about this, Clay Jenkins, a little bit mm-hmm. when I was in school, just like about um, like great, great players like coltrane and we look up to it's not just like the improvisation part it's like the interpretation of the melody and how Mm -hmm. it's like such an extension of their other style you know it doesn't sound like they're just playing the melody and then improvising it sounds like almost like one thing but like the because the melodic statement is so personal to their style do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah 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 and and, like and like sonny rollins is another example you know that like Mm -hmm. personalize it in such a way that like it's definitely just the song, but then it's so connected to their improvisational style that's uh, anyway, something that I find pretty fascinating right because I, I yeah. find I play it like different like I'm like, oh, here's the melody and now here's the changes and I'll and it's like two different things but trying to get it to be one thing.
1: yeah, I think it's easy for us um, to get a little clinical or academic or whatever about it. you know like okay, let's present the melody as clear as possible. With a couple of tasteful blues fills, <laughs> and then um, then we can start the shredding. Yeah, and um, I'm not sure why I mean maybe because we're not jazz legends, maybe <laughs> maybe that's why. Um, yeah, I get I guess this track is just could just be like a placeholder for any example of Coltrane playing a melody that we've all played a million times.
0: Sure. Yeah, it's from it's from the album Lush Life.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Nineteen fifty-eight. Look at that. The power of Google.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, wow.
0: Excellent. Uh, and the next track, yeah, this has got to be. I, I would imagine that this is an important one for you.
1: Yep. Totally. And um, this is the beginning of kind of like a three-part answer.
0: Okay.
1: From me. Uh, I mean, the next three tracks are kind of um, one big thing. Okay. But.
0: Go ahead.
1: Just dive in. All right. Uh, so this is not from subconsciously. This is like a, a different recording from 2 Not one which I think is actually Warren Marsh's record from, um, uh, from 1975. And uh, it's like it's a live recording. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, first, like I, Lee Konitz was like the first saxophone player I was really into. I think in like like seventh grade, my teacher told me you have to get this Lee Konitz album, and I loved it. Obviously, um, and um, similar similar to Eastman, um, a lot of my teachers had connections to Lee Conant's and Warren Marsh, um, kind of through Los Angeles and, um, right. Yeah. Through the scene. But this track in particular uh, is so cool because, um, of Lee's sound on it. It's really fractured and, um, kind of broken. It's like, there's a lot of moments where he's pushing his tone to this place where it gets, um, uh, it sounds like it's shattering. You know, sometimes he's um, getting like a, mul- he's like overblowing and getting some kind of Um uh, He's playing with the timbre and playing with the intonation in a way that's really expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of assume, um, I mean, I-, I kind of get into this mindset of the Tristano school as being super dry and clean and all about the line, um, but, you know that's just, just that's just not true, especially from from this record. Um, and what when I first heard it, what my first thought was that he sounds like Ornette, um, which to me was was a crazy conclusion, but I, I just couldn't escape it, and I still still think that. And I think it's because of this. He's like pushing the tone somewhere, kind of pushing the instrument to his it's expressive extremes um, within like a swing context. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, I think it's just a really fantastic description of, or a a really fantastic example of great saxophone playing and great manipulation of the tone. And I think it's just um, interesting how, how much these two alto players sound like each other, even though the popular narrative is that they're on whatever, like different ends of the spectrum or something. Uh You know what I mean? Yep. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Have you heard this? I have heard the story that Lee asked Ornette to play with his group at Umbria, like in the 1980s. Is this like a well-known?
0: I don't know. I haven't heard this story.
1: That's. I mean, that's. The st- that's what I. The story I have, start to finish. That's. Those are the only details I have. Oh, okay. No, uh, no I didn't know that.
0: That would be interesting, though. Would
1: yeah. Um. I. I really love the idea that. Um. Two of my alto players would be. Big fans of each other. You know, I always like hearing things. Like that. About. Um, the jazz tradition. Uh huh. There's a lot of. It seems to be. I mean, that's kind of in the genre in general. That's a great thing about it is that there's a lot of love for um, people who sound very different than you. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Seems to be a lot of of examples of uh, respect being paid. Yeah, Um,
0: definitely. And so that uh, leads us into this Rodgers and Hammerstein?
1: Yeah, number, number seven on my list. Um, so do you know this tune? Yeah. Another great one. Um, I kind of got obsessed with Carousel a few years ago, as any of my my friends will tell you. Um, <laughs> I was trying to spread the Carousel gospel. Sure, sure. And um, I don't think it exactly caught on, <laughs> but <laughs> it wasn't convincing enough. But I'm still trying to spread it, so here I am. Okay,
0: so here you are spreading it now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what? What about? So the um, tune you picked out was "If I Loved You."
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, this entire this entire musical is really beautifully crafted, and I think one of the reasons jazz musicians don't know it as well as they know, um, like Gershwin and Cole Porter, or even or even like West side story, uh, is because the songs just don't fit into a lead sheet. You just can't put them there. Um, you can't turn them into something to improvise them to improvise over. Like, I mean, if I loved you, for example, I think it's like eight minutes long and, um, there's all these themes that pop up in the middle of it and it's all woven into, into the drama of the scene. Okay. Um, The other strange thing about it, um, part of my obsession was that I transcribed like almost all the songs. And one of the weird things about it is that a lot of the chord movements um, are less American songbook and almost kind of impressionist. Um, Hmm. They kind of have like this, a lot of like this modal ebb and flow to them. Um, And a lot of very cool... Very cool harmonies that we don't hear in um, American Songbook a lot.
0: Wow.
1: But uh, so the reason I chose this track in particular is because um, it ties into the Ornette theme of the previous one. A little fun fact for all the listeners uh, maybe everyone knows this, but it was, um, I feel like I discovered it. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> go
1: ahead sorry yeah that's okay no it is it's ridiculous uh ornette quotes this melody at the beginning of his solos on turnaround both on the the recording from "Tomorrow's the question in 1959 and sound grammar from 2006 okay he plays like the first eight bars in the entire you know an entire a section over a blues and it, it fits perfectly um oh but I first heard it on tomorrow's the question I was like that's probably a coincidence cuz it's a simple melody and um, what a crazy thing if that were if that were true right uh, but then he did it again 50 years later um, like the exact same exact same quote on the exact same tune so now I'm convinced that Ornette was a huge was also a huge Carousel fan.
0: Well, now you have something to talk about when you meet
1: him. Um, you can dive yeah. right,
0: in, right into Carousel.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> I guess, except he passed away, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> so um, at the pearly gates. Yeah, at, that will be that will that be, be the, the first, first thing.
0: thing.
1: Yeah, I bring up. <clears throat> uh, oh man. Carousel. Yeah, but yeah. Then also, there's some kind of biographical details that for me that tie into this, uh, my parents are big musical theater people. Like my dad conducted theater and my mom acted in musicals for a long time. Uh And so, um, that was kind of my first introduction into music. We always have musicals playing around the house. Um, like I knew all like Gershwin musicals, Cole Porter musicals, um, I used to sit in the orchestra pit my dad conducted and would like listen from there when I was a kid. Oh wow. And um yeah, so actually I knew when I first started learning standards, I I, there's a lot of them that I knew from like the original cast recording.
0: Wow.
1: You know, like I knew the verses and stuff. Um not to sound like pretentious, like, you know
0: (laughs) I know all
1: the verses. Yeah, don't play the tune, man, if you don't know the verse. Um but seriously, I did know. <laughs> I knew them through that, uh-huh. uh, through that avenue, and I, I'm I'm convinced that that kind of gave me a leg up. Um, I think it's a little easier for me to get into um, just the format of jazz standards mm-hmm. because I, I knew all these all these musicals.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. And so, um, and so how does this tie into Guillermo Klein?
1: Oh, okay. So this is where I'm inserting.
0: Oh, you're inserting right here. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, and so m- number eight or 7.5 or whatever you you want to call it. 7.5. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just the original recording of Turnaround uh, oh, okay. by Arnett with Don Cherry, uh, Red Mitchell, Shelley Man from Tomorrow's the Question. Cool. Um, for obvious reasons, just to, you know, put a bow on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we
0: can hear the quote.
1: Hear exactly. It. Yeah, yeah. But also, um, I mean, obviously, Ornette is just a huge influence um, for me and for for cowboys and Frenchmen. And um,
0: so, when did you first come across Ornette and his music? Then,
1: um, I think maybe at the Eastman Camp.
0: Okay.
1: I want to say um, so. The teacher there was Jose Encarnacion, who you must know um yeah great teacher and I, I remember we had a day we had like a saxophone master class and someone asked if he could just like tell us just list a bunch of recordings that we have to know and so he just started listing and everyone started chiming in with recordings they knew about um and that was so awesome i, I was like 16 or something and um that's where i found so many so many great albums that i still listen to all the time Uh i'm so i'm sure ornette was on that list and um you know it took me you know a long time for some people some people love ornette right away he's saying something that they've been listening for Uh you know um but for me it, it was not that way it was um i really had to develop develop an ear for it and,
0: um, uh, mm-hmm. so, so I was going to say, so you first heard about it then. So how, when did you come back to it to like really have the ear for it?
1: Oh, well, I, I've always just kind of keep trying, keep trying, keep trying gotcha. to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, cause of, of course I felt like this weird guilt about, um, like, Oh, maybe I don't get it. Maybe I'm not, I'm not heavy enough. <laughs> uh, you know, all these dumb thoughts. And, um, at some point I, I tried transcribing a couple melodies and that really helped, um, to really get into his sound, into the way he expresses. And I think that's, uh, that was a great way of hearing, uh, of listening really closely to all the sonic details going on in a sound.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, Cause if you're just listening from afar and you've never really at least for me, and I never really dig in, I you know it's hard to tell what's going on like what is what's the point of this what why is he playing with the intonation and uh, why are they playing these kind of heads without a pianist? Why are they changing tempo? Um, it's a lot to take in,
0: yeah, totally um, yeah. yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, my like introduction to Ornette was kind of much different because it was like more of like a more of I heard Pat Metheny playing some of those tunes, mm. and and uh, kind of was like, well, what is that? Who is that guy? And then yeah, going to listen to it, to be like, whoa, this is how is this the same song? Well, you know, <laughs> this is like when I was in high school.
1: Yeah, yeah. But so was uh, that a was your reaction a positive one or like mystified?
0: Uh, yeah, I was kind of confounded. You know, I was like, whoa, mm. like what what
1: <laughs>
0: yeah like wow this is not what i expected and mm-hmm. it took me a while it, it was definitely like a thing where i had to same thing as you kind of like i got to come back to this and see if i can figure this out yeah i don't know if, i don't think i ever figured it out but you know just kind of oh right right yeah kind of keep coming back and be like okay you get something more get something more every time you come back I think. oh for
1: sure yeah really kind of embrace all of all of his uh his many mysteries
0: yeah man um cool well, let's keep going so yeah now we've got guillermo klein i jumped the gun before
1: oh yeah uh that's okay so yeah guillermo klein i think uh so this tune ellis Espejo" is one of my favorites uh and it's pretty popular i think if people know guillermo klein like if you bring up the name that's like the first this is like the first track people sing um because uh-huh. it's so beautiful, it's a beautiful melody. Um, I think that the on the list, I included the live in Barcelona version. I think that's the only one on Spotify, Okay, maybe, but there's the another original, one. Yeah. Hmm? Sorry? I
0: was going to say, but that, there's another one, right?
1: Yeah, from uh, Les Squacha's 3, right, I believe. Right.
0: Yeah, that's the one I know.
1: Yeah, same. Um, and I like that one a lot, because it's, it's very clear. Um very clean recording and you can really hear the composition. Gotcha. But, um, yeah. So, in, I mean, in my opinion, um, McLean is just one of the best composers working today. Totally. And, um, I, have only heard him once. I caught their, uh, village Vanguard set, I think last year. Okay. And they did this tune they did a bunch of new stuff. And, um, I've been such a huge fan for so long. It was, um, uh, very rewarding, very, uh, very, dare I say, emotional <laughs> musical experience. Um, but this tune in particular, it's not just catchy. It has like this immediacy of its compositional ideas. You know, there's no like, uh, there's no vamp at the top, um, and there's there's some layers that come in before the main idea, but they're they're the composition. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Um, there's there's no there's no waiting around. There's no kind of like twiddling your thumbs until until the main course. Um, it's just like, and I don't really know why. I, th- I mean I think that's just the the, the endless challenge of composing. Um, I don't know why this this tune is so good you know, you could analyze it all you want. Um, there's, you know, very tight craftsmanship. Um, the d- development has this feel of inevitability to it. Um, but he's not like, you know, pounding motives into your, into your ears. It's not like this ham fisted, look at me, I'm a composer <laughs> type, <laughs> type thing to it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, which is the, which is the worst I've much rather <laughs> listen I'd much rather listen to like, um, like a, a blues that was composed in 15 seconds, than someone's um big overwritten, sure, um manifesto, which is like the danger of of being uh, of want of being an ambitious composer. If you feel like you have a lot to say, um it's just so easy to mess that up.
0: Yeah. I feel like it's easy to cloud the, the main intention with like other stuff. Cause you, it's at your disposal or you have the time or you think it's supposed to be some certain way.
1: Yeah. Right. And also you've learned, um, kind of like through, through your practice, you, you've learned justifications for writing bad, bad music, you know, like, um, like, well, this, this section must be fine. It must be fine to include this because it's actually the inversion of the original melody. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Like, it, must be, it, it sounds bad, but it must be okay.
0: It must be okay. Cause it's, <laughs> it's, it fits this technical definition of music.
1: Yeah. I just, I tend to do that all the time. Um, I'll ruin a, ruin a good piece with that, that kind of logic. And um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on Guillermo. I don't know how he does it, you know, like what's what's the secret. But um,
0: I don't know. I think it's some blend of knowledge and intuition that mm-hmm. you know everybody lands in a certain place on that whatever spectrum that is. And I think his is just particularly compelling.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know. Yeah. What are
1: uh, what 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 are your? You said you know this pretty well. What are your Thought. I
0: mean, I don't know it super well, but I've definitely heard it and I've gone to, you know, I've gone to the Vanguard and heard the band. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always, it's like very, I enjoy it because it's very personal and per, and very um, specific. Like it sounds like, it sounds like him and I'm kind of drawn to anyone that, that sounds like themselves and not just a repeating of some other stuff, you know, yeah, to me, like regardless of where they fall on like a jazziness spectrum you know i'm mm. kind of just like compelled to hear someone that has an opinion you know
1: right yeah far more important um,
0: um that for yeah, me at el- least go ahead sorry no, no i was just saying for me at least yeah that, that's one of the most important
1: things oh okay yeah yeah um the other thing i really love about his band that has like uh, this is super rare to have kind of like this ellington like um ability to have this really strong compositional voice but also you can always hear the players like you always know it's Miguel Zanon playing um I mean that's obviously my my favorite example because I'm an (laughs) also player (laughs) but um I don't know I don't know if you get that same sense but it it always feels like the individual's as well as the composer's voice.
0: Do you feel like that is because he has strong individual voices or do you feel like the music would allow that, allow for that regardless of who is playing it?
1: Mm, I think it's a combination of both. Um, probably. Right. I mean, that's not a, yeah. that's not a satisfying answer, but no,
0: I mean, I mean, uh, because Miguel is so also so like personal and strong and, compelling as a voice on his own that i mean at least to me like it sticks out almost because that's true because it's not in a bad way but just because like oh yeah that's miguel like
1: that yeah that's a good point like yeah you always hear that wide vibrato um same with like san francisco jazz collective you always you can always tell it's it's miguel um but i guess that's the same
0: with ellington's band because you can always tell it's you know johnny hodges for example you know
1: right 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 um but yeah i think once again he's garen was just striking this incredible balance between um what he puts on the page and what he what he leaves off the page um that very few composers have been able to have been able to do
0: yeah no he's definitely incredible and i don't know if you noticed when you saw them recently but when i when I saw them before, like I noticed, Miguel had the whole book memorized.
1: Oh yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> like um, he
0: didn't look down one time.
1: No, they were playing. Uh, what's that? It's like fugue X or something. That there's like this crazy fugue in seven eight that they do. Uh-huh. Um, and they didn't even. Yeah, he wasn't even looking. I don't. Um, <laughs> yeah. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just
0: like what? Okay. Yeah. Excellent. So let's keep going here. So next we have cool. Maria.
1: Yeah. So and uh, I had to include something by her, obviously. Um, so, like I mentioned at the beginning of this of this cast, um, that she was definitely one of the first great composers, great modern composers that I was I was hyped to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this might be the only album of hers on, on Spotify. Thompson Fields. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I think imagine. it's there. I hope it's there. Um. I mean, if it's not there, um, yeah, people you should know. go buy it. Yeah, maybe everyone can go um, get her whole catalog from to Share. Totally. Um. Anyway, uh, maybe I shouldn't advertise another label on your labels podcast.
0: No, no, no. It's fine.
1: So, okay. Uh, yeah, but this tune, Arbiters of Evolution, I kinda have the same same comments that I had for Guillermo Klein. It has uh, this immediacy to it that she had that she's able to tap into. Um she does it with this, she does it with hang gliding, um, and a bunch of other tunes. And um, I know she talks about this too, like in interviews and master classes about um that there's no there are no introductions. You know, the piece starts on the downbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a really powerful, really powerful comment about composition, especially in a jazz context. Um, but there's just something so compelling about this melody. It's, it's really simple. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like oh, I kind of, I could have had that idea, but there's no way I could, I could develop it like this. Right, You know, it's like five minutes go by and you don't even realize like we get to the solos five minutes later and you don't even realize it. Um, I forget how long this track is exactly.
0: It's pretty long. I think it's like nine or 11 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah it's, it could be even longer than that, actually.
1: But it's definitely um, of classic Schneider length, <laughs> uh, you know. Yep. But yeah, it's one of those things you don't even notice you don't notice the length of it. Like and you don't, you don't feel as if you're hearing the shout section. Um, you don't feel like, Oh, okay. Now we're getting to the solos. It's, actually, uh, it's 14 minutes long. Oh, jeez <laughs> So my comments are, um, even more valid that there's just some magic about, um, well, I mean, it, it's also, You know decades of hard work right obviously on her part but she her compositions just get to this magical place um of basically the the composer just disappearing and you just hear the music and the musicians playing it um
0: yeah so yeah i could you've been you've done some of her rehearsals before right mm -hmm. yeah i just remember i remember being there when she was rehearsing this one Mm -hmm. uh and just how interesting it was to see her process, like, like it's very fully formed, but at the same time, not really formed at all when she brings it into a band rehearsal, you know? Right. Like, trying to, like, get out of her head what's in there and get mm. and be able to communicate it to other people. Like, just seeing that process, to me, was, like, really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, I think we might have been at the same rehearsal. I was going to bring that up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry. Sorry, I stole your story.
1: No, come on, man. Um, it's, it's my one good story. Uh, no, I think it would have been like 2012 or something. Yeah, I don't and, even remember. And she brought in a rough draft. Yeah. Um, and I I had literally moved to New York like two days before. Um, and it—that's another long story. It, it was just like a huge mess. Um, trying to move from Rochester to here and get to this rehearsal. I was so stressed. I think I got to the rehearsal like an hour and 45 minutes early and, <laughs> just, you know, and just sat there with all my instruments, um, like a weirdo. Uh, but like she brought in the rough draft of this tune and, um, for, I couldn't, I mean, first of all, I could not believe my fortune that I was reading a Maria Schneider rough draft. You know, I, that was just, I was, um, over the moon I couldn't believe it. But then also, like you said, um, it it was like three pages and it just kind of trailed off and um, there were like no crescendo. She was having us write in all the hairpins
0: right.
1: and like kind of conducting us through them. Um, and you could hear it like slowly getting more and more focused. Right.
0: Um,
1: and so that was really cool to to witness that process. And and for it to be like, oh, it's okay even for um, a creative genius, like they still go through the through the rough draft process.
0: Right, right. It doesn't just just come out of their head, like fully formed. Like it takes, like you said, focus. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Trial and trial and trial. Um, So, yeah, that's, you know, that's how I feel about Maria.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm there with you. Mm. Yeah, that was that's one of my favorite. Favorite rehearsals in New York for sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. So this tra- yeah, Arbiters of Evolution is definitely up there on my list mm-hmm. as well. Oh, uh, yeah. Excellent. Well, and then uh, we're gonna include one of your compositions on here just for uh, you know, possibly you know, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, so this tune, be- which one did you pick? Bells.
1: Of I did. Oh, uh, that's Owens. I did Bridge oh. Inside My M- Okay, cool.
0: Sorry.
1: Yeah. No, that's okay. Um it's a compliment. <laughs> um Yeah, so I, I chose this one from our our first album Rodeo and um I'm trying to think why I cho- why I chose it. Or maybe should I should I just kind of explain sure. what it is? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um Yeah, so it's it's like a metaphor and the title is um Kind of a, a thinly veiled metaphor for a synapse like in you know in the brain sure. um but also a metaphor for the creative process or at least how it feels it's happening in my mind where um you have all these very disparate things flowing around in your brain and um at some point a spark flies from one to the other and you kind of realize oh these two things are these two things have a lot in common And, um, and that's, for me at least, that's where, um, something new, that's where the creative process, um, jumps off and you can start, you know, turning that into something original. Um, and so this, this track itself, um, also kind of mirrors that idea I I was really trying to play with, um, play with form and the way it controls a soloing environment, um, which Cowboys and Frenchmen is great for. Um, that's kind of our, our our goal of the band is to have like one foot somewhere conventional and one foot somewhere strange Uh and to, and to always kind of be on that border. Um, so at the time I was thinking a lot about what, what domains control a solo form. Um, and usually we, we just say, oh, well, what's the chords. It's whatever the changes of the tune are. And you do that um, until you run out of ideas, and then the next person does it. But I was trying to, trying to get somewhere else. So the basic idea of this is um, the whole band plays this simple melody with huge interval leaps, um, just kind of like a big, weird, loud thing. And then the piano solo starts, and it has like this. uh, It's Chris Ziemba lending his mastery. Um, And it has kind of like this Miles Davis second quintet feel to it. Uh, But then behind it, Owen and I are playing this very soft, flowing, uh, atonal melody behind them. And kind of like the the quote-unquote rules of the tune Mm -hmm. is that Chris' solo was over once Owen and I finish our big, long melody. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the concept, was, um, you know, instead of having changes, what if the length of the melody determined how you solo? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's cool or interesting, but that was yeah. the idea behind, behind its construction.
0: No, I think it's cool. I think it's interesting. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm always trying to find find reasons to try doing something a different way as well. You know.
1: Yeah. It gets yeah, boring. Yeah, I feel like yeah, it gets very boring. It doesn't matter how cool the chords are. It's just like I can't do this again.
0: Right, right.
1: Um shred my shred my patterns.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, I, mean, I was I played a concert maybe a month ago and a guy came up to me afterwards and he was telling me he's, he's a huge jazz fan, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, I just, I really want to ask you a question. And I'm like, okay. He's like, you know, I I wonder, do you guys ever get bored, like, of the, doing the same thing? Like, you guys play together, and then, like, everybody kind of, like, makes stuff up, and then you guys all play together again? Does that, does that format ever get boring? <laughs> I was like, wow, That's okay. <laughs> That's
1: a great question. It's like tapping into something most of us probably don't want to deal with don't want, to think, don't want to think about but yeah i think he's probably right yeah. um i was like
0: well it, that's a good point
1: yeah got some thinking to do uh, yeah i think usually we think either in terms of um or when we want to go outside the box it's free and there's nothing in between the two but um so that's what i that's what i wanted to avoid i was like i want something that's a very clear restriction on how a solo form um, works except I don't want it to just sound like free and I don't want it to just sound like um, a tune.
0: Right. Right. um, I think that's that's the the most compelling kind of avant garde, whatever you want to call it, like avant garde music or whatever is not totally free. It's mostly, it's like very organized and it's freeness.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I like playing, I like playing free. Um, and for me it has kind of like this, this social catharsis to it. And the sounds are very beautiful in the abstract. Um, the way the form just kind of manifests itself organically. Um, but if I'm doing it a lot, uh, like you said, yeah, I like there to be something as Clay says, something to hang your hat on, uh, you know, so that's, that's why, um, that's why I wrote this tune.
0: Great. Well, man, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today.
1: Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Totally. Is there anything else you want? You felt like you had wanted to, to say or talk about that you didn't get a um, chance to.
1: I don't think so. I feel like I, I um, talked a lot. Is that. That's great. i um, sorry. <laughs>
0: no, no, it's great. It's totally cool. great. And uh, so, yeah, Watch out for the new Cowboys and Frenchmen album. Do you guys have a title yet?
1: Yeah, it's called Bluer Than You Think.
0: Excellent. So Bluer Than You Think is going to be out, uh, I think, in October 2017.
1: Yep. Cannot wait.
0: Awesome. Well, Ethan, thanks again, and uh, enjoy your brunch.
1: Thank you, Nick. I will. Um, Thanks for having me.
0: Totally. All right, man. I will catch you soon. Thanks to Ethan Helm of Cowboys and Frenchmen for chatting and sharing some of his top ten music. Make sure you check out his Spotify playlist so you can see all of these tracks. Uh, there's more than ten here because uh, we included a couple versions of that Ligeti that he was talking about. And uh, just some other bonus stuff. So make sure you listen to that. And thanks for listening to the, Over Here. My name is Nick Finzer and we'll see you back here real soon.